Hello, and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight, we are going to continue with the second half of the 2022 Ruby on Rails Community Survey results and talk about those. But first, how was your week? Good question. <laughs> uh, so... Oh my God, I feel, gosh, I feel like I've been behind the eight ball on so much stuff because there was a conference I was supposed to go to and then I had a training scheduled and then just kind of everything is just, and the conference was remote. So, you know, it's one of those ones where you log in and you're kind of like, I wonder if there are replays of these and I wonder if I can replay them at 1.5 speed or something. <laughs> Or, or you scrub very quickly using your mouse saying, next slide. Okay, I got the point. Next slide. Yeah. Okay, but he, so you consume the content in 10 minutes as opposed to sitting through an hour-long presentation. Um, <laughs> kind of like our show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we don't have slides. That's right. <laughs> So, but I would, but I do listen to us on 1.5x. Anyway, <laughs> um, another frustrating thing is like, so you know how I had to rebuild my computer a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. And I was, I use Ansible for configuration management of my servers. So it basically, you kind of define what your servers, to, how you want them to be configured, and then you do an Ansible to pull deploy provision and deploy and it you know essentially makes it so and enables your configuration on your servers well the project's done something weird where they had the ansible core i'm still trying to wrap my head around it which is core ansible but then there's a community edition i think where they add more stuff in but it's still of course open source and there are different versionings like the core is that 2.0.13 um, or something like that. But the community edition is on version five and they're working on version six. So the versioning is weird. And then if you, I use AWS and if you interact with AWS, well, they have their own versioning scheme. So it's just been baffling. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to move to the community edition because it was telling me I could only get Ansible Core 2.10. Whereas, in other words, when I looked to say what versions can I install, it told me 2.10. And then I typed Ansible hyphen hyphen version. And it says you're on version 2.13. And I'm like, how is this possible? So I just like, all right, I'm going to do the community edition. I, you know, they had five. I can go up to the most recent version of five, whatever it is, five, eight, whatever. And I did it. That's like, okay, so now I'm getting some deprecation warnings. So I'm like, okay, work, you know, work through some of those deprecation warnings. And I've just been ramming my head against how to resolve those because they changed a lot in terms of the provisioning, like telling a AWS to create a server, that process and interaction, they've, there's a whole set of changes you have to use to do it. So a lot of it has been hitting my head up against that. 
Hmm. Anyway, but those are just general frustrations. How about you? <laughs> um, well, uh, so I'm, I'm on the journey of trying to get a lot of our things up to Ruby 3, <clears throat> and that's quite quite the challenge with the SEO, not SEO, SOA stuff that we're doing, because um, we got a crap ton of little gems and services all over the place, and so you change this one, and it makes this one break, and you change that one, and it makes these two break, and then you're constantly chasing around oh, this. Yeah, I hate that. Uh, Dependency hell. Yeah. So that's that's my my major engineering challenge this week and then i've been spending a lot of time actually doing policy addendum writing and all kinds of goofy Woo-hoo. management bleh, which i don't really like but you know sometimes you just got to do what you got to do so um you know it is what it is but that's that is where I am at this week. So nothing really exciting. Um, just the uh, what Ruby three is a little little goofy because it's separated the um, the default parameter stuff, and now you have to do that double splat to to denote that it's default parameters. So you can't just do positional. Um, parameter hashing anymore it's it's been a little bit of a pain in the butt to get that all straightened out and i'm still not entirely i mean i've read up why they did it uh because it was complicated to figure out when it's supposed to be a default parameter and when it's not and all this kind of stuff but i i just don't get it i that seems like a bad change to me but so you're saying these are default parameters for like method calls. Method calls, yeah. Mean? Okay. Hmm. I didn't run into <clears throat> any issues that I recall. Knock on wood. Yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a pain in the butt. Like for instance, the the dry RB stuff, like so um, were you relying on positioning? In some cases, yes. Um, so, like, okay. instead of just passing in a hash and, and saying, okay, these are the parameters in this hash, um, you have to double splat the hash if it's the last parameter. And I'm still not entirely sure on the exact rules, but it's a bit of a pain. Um, and it seems to kind of follow through into gems and things. So in 2.7, there would be a lot of deprecation warnings about it. Now, <clears throat> I'm actually having to fix a lot of that stuff because 3.0 just is just broken. Um, stops working. So, I mean, not a horrible thing, but it's just kind of chasing those down is a bit of a bit of a bugaboo. Mm-hmm. But, all right. Anyway, on to the community survey results. All right, so last week we took a look at the first half of this, uh, and we are going to start back with the JavaScript section. Uh, so what? Oh, goody, my favorite. <laughs> I know, right? 
uh, what JavaScript libraries are you using alongside Rails? None, because I don't have to do front-end development anymore. Woohoo! I don't see the screen. Are you share screen? Oh, well, you know, there's that. There you go. Um, so we we do, at, at the company, people do use React primarily where I work, mm -hmm. but I don't have mm -hmm. to touch jQuery anymore. I'm purely platform back-end stuff now. When I was using it, I was using jQuery. Yeah, I'm using... Interesting, they don't have just pure JavaScript. So I'm using some pure JavaScript in places, some jQuery, and a smattering of React for certain highly interactive elements of the UI. I've never tried stimulus i've never tried hotwire so yeah and i never approached viewer angular i was going to try view for a little bit but yeah yeah i'm not and i expect hotwire i did try i did try the elm one percent up there yeah so i i tried that at one point because that was looking interesting but you know it just never took off yeah, and when I was using jQuery, now this is, I don't know, three or four years ago was the last time I had to do any front-end programming, but, you know, we, we were looking at React, and I was looking at it going, I mean, at this point, why bother? I don't want to learn something new for, for a part of the programming I don't really like anyway. Um, I'll just stick with jQuery, but at at... This company, the company I'm working at now, they're actively replacing old jQuery stuff with React. They come across it, and all the new stuff is written in React. Um, so I I'm assuming there's a benefit to that. I couldn't tell you what it is. Well, it's essentially jQuery can get a little bit like spaghetti code. And the React, you know, you can form components. And then you can build something larger by grabbing various components and composing them together. So, and there's other advantages people can mention. I mean, I, I don't use a single page app. Yeah. So I'm only using it to as strictly, I mean, it's designed to be a UI interface, but just strictly do some UI elements. Like I don't do back and forth between the server and the client with the React that I've built. It just basically does a UI there, but when you actually submit a form or do something, it just does a typical post to the server. So yeah, the, the beauty part of my, this my is use of my use of React is not that sophisticated as others, put it that way. Yeah. The the, the real beauty part of this is I don't have to care. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, for Greenfield Rails projects, what are you using to manage JavaScript libraries? 59% uh, Yarn and Webpack. Well, that's that's probably going to go... Well, I don't know. I guess Yarn will still be a thing, but Webpack is, at least in the Rails world, is going to start taking a back seat, I think. Because that was around for what? Rails 6? And then it was gone. No, five five two. Uh, I yeah, think. I guess it started coming. 
I'm surprised that the asset pipe like these it says these are greenfield projects that people still are still using the asset pipeline well i i i'm actually surprised that webpack is as big as it is because a lot of people what i was reading was a lot of people were going this sucks we're just going to use the asset pipeline so i think a lot of people i think i heard a lot of people say this sucks but what am i going to do this is <laughs> i think a lot of big shops you know were went down this path well and so, to be fair and they have uh, the resources to burn to figure it out. well and, and not to mention the fact that how many big shops are doing greenfield projects most of those things are legacy apps that are getting brought forward so yeah i guess that's a big but if you but if you're going to be doing any greenfield projects and you're you know you're going to probably use what you're accustomed to using yeah right oh i yeah i mean if i was starting a new one even when I'm starting in my my play areas, my my fun box, I don't do Webpack because I don't get it. It's it seems like a much bigger pain in the butt than what it buys. So I just stick with the asset pipeline because it's something I don't want to I don't want to learn. It, yeah, I mean I think it's <laughs> it's based on how much JavaScript your app needs. If it needs a lot of JavaScript, you're probably going to be going that route. Although with the new stuff coming that came with Rails 7, you know, we'll see how that falls out going forward. Yeah, I suspect that this <clears throat> Yarn Webpack thing is going to fall significantly in the every two years they do this, so the 24 community survey results. Yeah. I suspect this is going to be something else. What JavaScript testing frameworks are you using to write tests? I'll let you take that because for me it's none. Well, again, I don't have a lot of JavaScript. So, and this is probably the wrong <laughs> way to do it. And most of my consulting with regards to Rails, there's not a lot of JavaScript with the projects that I'm working on, or it's not a ton. It's not like they're not single page apps typically, or I've just been contracted to work on backend stuff because that's where my primary expertise is with the databases and backend Ruby and whatnot. So what I've done is I'm just using the RSpec Java's capability. So I'm basically, I'm using browser-based testing to do it. So I, I haven't done unit tests for example, of the JavaScript. I'm relying on integration tests that test the browser. And that's what I was doing. I just did it all through RSpec when I was having to do that stuff. I played with Jasmine and Mocha to, to try to get to unit tests of JavaScript. And I, I, I just did not see the point. There was nothing that I needed to do in there that I couldn't just do in the integration tests of JavaScript. So, um, I, I'm. I don't know. I just never saw a point to go to anything other than RSpec with that. Yeah. So I mean, that's pretty much what I've done. It's like, well, I've got my integration tests to cover that, and they're, again, I don't have a whole heck of a lot of JavaScript code. I mean, maybe it would have made some of the like the React components I've made easier to build, but I mean, maybe, but. 
I mean, I guess if you're doing a lot of stuff in JavaScript, but see, I was always using JavaScript just for lighter front-end things or the UJS stuff, um, not for real heavy client-side app yeah, development. I, yeah, I think this is probably more important if you, and because I've never really built one, but like the single page apps. Mm-hmm. If you are working on that and you just want to verify, all right, this works, you you can't really, or it's harder to do like a full stack test. Yeah. Because if you are a front end developer, the back end's not going to be there or you don't know what it's going to be. So you have to, you know, test to make sure, all right, you're testing against like a defined interface, for example. Right. I mean, I can so see in I, that case. I, I see it makes more sense. I think it makes yeah. more sense. Or if you've put a lot of business logic in the in the JavaScript in the front end on the client side, you want to you want to unit test that stuff. I just it, that's just not a situation I was ever in, so I never had a reason to do anything more than the RSpec integration tests. That that was sufficient. Yep. So. Uh, what JavaScript package manager do you use? This whole None. section is not for, <laughs> not for me. Uh, 74% of people responding said yarn. I'm not not surprised by that. But not again, not something I have to worry about. Ah, testing and code quality. Here's my section. What code quality tools do you use? 49% RuboCop. Yeah, I've used RuboCop almost since it came out. I love it. Uh, especially when you're in teams of people, because it helps to standardize the um, the coding, makes it easier to read and parse and scan through code if everybody's code looks the same. Uh, and SimpleCov, I, I use that a lot too. Uh, 25% of people, I'm surprised that's not more, honestly. Um, and Ruby critic Does that do code quality though. Uh, it well, it depends on how you define code quality. For me, code qual part of measuring code quality is your coverage. Okay. I mean, so yeah, because it's yeah, it's all about code coverage. Right. Uh, Ruby critic. I'm very surprised that that's not more because Ruby. I love Ruby critic. That thing. I use that all the time but it's only three percent here so i'm i'm very surprised at that um and if if our viewers aren't using ruby critic you should you should check it out if you're doing rails apps it's really really good and i think code climate does probably does something similar well it's probably bigger shops it does that that pay for it so. yeah it, code climate is similar and in fact you can kind of build a poor man's code climate out of ruby critic uh but honestly i we have both i prefer ruby critic myself um so it actually gives me more of what i'm looking for than code climate does <clears throat> Uh, all right. Uh, what Rails testing frameworks are you using to write tests? 48% RSpec, 26% Capybara. Not at all surprised by that. 
I actually your favorite cucumber. <laughs> yeah, five percent. That needs to. That just needs to go away. Look, if you're a cucumber out user out there, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. It's cucumbers just bad. There's there's no reason for it. You're you're hurting the people who work on that gen now. You realize? <laughs> Listen, I'm sorry, but it's there's just no. Behavior-driven development is a good concept, but it only really works on a whiteboard. I've never gotten it to work in a in a professional development situation. It just trying to bridge that gap between product people and engineering people is is not something you can do with code. Just it just doesn't work. And so you add all this DSL and and bloated runtimes and stuff for what amounts to not much. And I'm sorry, cucumber, but it's just uh, it's just not there. Anyway, on to other rants. But RSpec, yeah, Capybara, yeah. I'm honestly surprised to see many tests at 17% because I have I have yet to run into. A programmer that uses mini test. I've I've never run into anybody that does it. I mean, obviously they're out there, but well, I mean, isn't that the default test environment for Rails? It is. So clearly, Basecamp is using it, and there's probably <laughs> other shops using it. So that's why it's there. Well, yeah, but seventeen percent of uh, seven hundred and fifty-six respondents out of this what twenty-two hundred or whatever it was. Yeah, that's that's a lot, I, and. I mean, I'm not saying mini test is bad. It's fine. It's just I'm very surprised because I've never met an actual person that uses it. That just surprised me. What's your go-to Ruby debugger tool? Uh, Pry, 50%. Yeah, that's what I use with Bybug. Um, that's 32%. So. It, that's most of what I run into in the wild. And and it does just fine, so I'm not sure why you would want something else. Uh code test spec ratio. What code what code to test spec ratio does your team aim for? Eighty one to a hundred percent, forty nine percent. That's I mean, 80% is kind of the gold standard when you look at, you know, what people say you should have before you try doing major refactors. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. 100 to 150%? I, I don't see how you could possibly achieve that. But, I mean, 100% test coverage is... Except for very small apps, just seems a bit wasteful to me because there are a lot of things that just don't need testing. And if you're writing tests for them, you're kind of wasting your time. But, I mean, I guess that what does your team aim for? I guess aiming for 100% and achieving 100% are two different things, I suppose. Yeah, what, look at the next question here. Oh boy. 
And what is your actual code to test ratio? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 30%, 81 to 100%. Okay. Uh, 22% at 61 to 80. 15% at 41 to 60. Okay. Well, the good news here is that the majority of people have more than 50% test coverage. So that's that's a good thing. One to twenty percent is ten percent of people. That's that's not that okay, people. Come on now. Get your tests going. I mean, I could understand not having eighty percent. Eighty percent is a hard number to hit, especially when you've got very big apps and, and distributed projects and that kind of stuff. That's really hard to do. But under twenty, that's dangerous. What code quality tools do, didn't we already do this? We must have repeated yeah, I this think question. It's a duplicate. Which error tracking tools do you use in production? Oh boy, this is a whole lot. This is a weird graph too. Um, not sure why they did well, it this way. Well, they're just showing their position over time. Yeah. Well, there's Datadog. That's what we use, and that's. What it... Okay, so I'm I'm guessing this is number one at top. Yeah. Um so New Relic. New Relic is good for NPM, but I don't I don't think I oh, to be fair, it it's does been error a number... it does error tracking. Yeah, it's been a number of years since I've used New Relic. Uh and its error tracking was very rudimentary then. So maybe it's better. Uh, we have Rollbar and Datadog. Rollbar we use for error tracking. Datadog is more NPM. I don't know that it does a lot of real. I mean, I guess it does, but it's not. It's not something like Rollbar or Honey Badger that actually does the collection of um, the correlation of errors and stuff. It's more like an error logger. So it's a little bit different. We have both Rollbar and Datadog. Uh, we're, I'm getting ready to implement AppSignal there because I actually, that's my favorite one is AppSignal. Um, but I have used Rollbar, Datadog, HoneyBadger, AppSignal, AirBrake, uh, and Raygun. And out of those, AppSignal is by far my favorite for Rails projects. It's interesting how the year century has got to the first position and also how AppSignal has been growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and I've never used Sentry. I hear a lot about it, but I've never actually used it. So it's entirely possible that it deserves that position. Um. Well, I mean, obviously it deserves that position because most people are using it. But I think AppSignal is probably going to be up a couple more spots in the next two years unless something happens to them and they drop off the face of the earth. But at the rate they're going right now, they're they're really doing a good job moving that forward. Okay, so which performance monitoring tools do you use in production? So these are the APMs. Yeah. So in 2009, the top answer was none. That's 
kind of the... Well, in 2020, that was the number two answer, but now it's not there. Uh, number one, New Relic. Not a surprise. Number two, Data Dog. Not a surprise. Uh, CloudWatch, Prometheus, App Signal moving up. Again, I'm not surprised. Um, they are more, they're putting more APM type stuff in their app. I don't use it a lot for APM side. I use it mostly for the error tracking and, and correlation because it does a really good job with that. And that's kind of what I think they started as. Um, Sentry APM. Uh, so Sentry bug tracking is number one, but Sentry APM is, what, number six? That's weird. And I, I would have thought Scout would have been a little higher. But... Well, it was, but... Yeah, it was. It's falling off. Guess it's having some issues. Uh, so well, Sentry... Was... I guess Sentry didn't have an APM up until recently. <clears throat> so... But they've... They're kind of lighting in there halfway up the stack, so that's good, I suppose. I haven't used it, though. Are you using an automated security tool like Bundler Audit? 53% yes. So it's about half and half. We are. We use Bundler Audit. Um, and it's automated in Travis. So every time something happens in one of our branch tests, we are immediately notified. Um, I highly recommend Bundler Audit. It's simple to use and saves you from a lot of security issues. Unless you're just doing, but you know, GitHub's updates. Also, but GitHub is also doing a lot if you're hosting your code there. Because I'm getting notifications. Like, I just got a notification where it's not a gem that I pulled in, but it's a dependency of AWS. Hmm. One of the AWS gem, I can't remember what it's called. One of its dependencies had a security issue and it said, hey, here's a pull request for you to resolve this. I'm like, oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah, and we get the GitHub notifications as well, which is nice. And I guess that's part of the automated security tools. Um, but I, I don't understand why you wouldn't be using one of those because the GitHub thing is pretty much automatic as far as I know. Yeah, I'm, you may have to do something to enable it. I can't remember, but yeah. So... But I'm 50-50. I that seems a little odd to me. I would have expected a lot more people to be using automated things like that. Uh, deployment and DevOps. Ugh. How often do you deploy releases of your Rails application to production? Um. So in 2009, a few times a month was the top answer. <clears throat> now it's almost daily. Uh, we are in to production. We're we're a few times a month, but that's because we have so many different things that have to be coordinated for a full production release. We do have dev and staging releases multiple times a week for for different apps. 
So, I mean, I guess collectively we're releasing stuff almost daily, but a full production release. Not... Well, they're saying two productions. So yeah. Two production, it would be, would you say, a few times a month? Yeah. and Well, and not to mention the fact that we don't just have a production environment. We have quite a few very large clients that have their own production environments that we have to deploy to. So those schedules get kind of wonky sometimes because we have to wait for those clients to say, yes, we would like you to go ahead and do your production deploy here. So, you know, I guess it's a little weird, but... Um, yeah, and I'm a few times a week to daily for my small app. So Yeah, and I think that's, you know, the continuous deployment stuff is makes sense. I wish we could get there, and we're working towards getting more frequent. Um, but it's, it's hard when you've got a huge amount of stuff to deploy. <clears throat> what automated deployment tools do you use? So 2009, Capistrano was number one. Now it's number three. Um, so continuous deployment. So I'm assuming they mean systems like Travis or Jenkins or something like that, which we use Travis. Um, get Capistrano, other, none, Vlad the deployer. That's pretty much dropped off the radar after 2014. Um, but it's interesting they say deployment tools. Well, I mean, yeah, get is if you're coding there and you use a part, a part of it. And Capiz I wish they had broke out this continuous deployment. Yeah, so do I, because like that's, what, I'm what more interested are in using. that. Because the only, the only place I can think that you're using get as the automated deployment is if you're doing something like Heroku. Well, sure. Well, you can also, you know, as part of my deployment, I'm pulling in the Git source code. Maybe that's the relevance. Yeah, but Git isn't your deployment tool. It's part of your deployment process, but it's not your deployment tool. Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't. Can, I haven't looked that much into GitHub Actions. Is that something that that can be, do? I don't even know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure how they how they got to that. What that means? I'd like to understand a little more about what that what that means it in says, context of this. Quote, GitHub Actions make it e easy to automate all your software workflows now with world-class CI, CD. Huh. Build, test, and deploy your code right from GitHub. But And what's weird is in 2018, Git was the number one answer to this question. And it's dropped off a spot since then, but... I mean, in terms of deployment tools, I mean, I would have expected to see some continuous deployment, continuous integration platforms. You know, are you using Docker? Are you using Kubernetes? Are you, do, you know, mm -hmm. and so this is kind of an odd response, unless there's a question further down that goes into more detail. Possibly. But yeah, I'm a little confused by that one. Oh, there you go. Where's your source code? Hosted. GitHub. 
GitHub 67%. Well, I mean, yeah, and GitLab 16%. I'm not at all surprised by that. Um, Bitbucket has a little bit. Sure, I, I see that once in a while. I've never it personally. I tried it once, but I was like, wow. GitHub was just way easier to me. SourceForge is almost nothing. That used to be huge, but... Well, just, you know, keep in mind this is for the Ruby community, so maybe yeah. there's other languages that... Well, I, SourceForge, I think, is is dropping off across the board. I don't think people that much anymore. Uh, what CDNs do you use? CloudFront and CloudFlare are almost all of them. Yep. True. Fastly, 7%. I would have thought that would have been a little higher because I hear quite a bit about that, but... Uh, if you have deployed applications using other languages frameworks, would you say that it has been easier or harder to deploy Rails applications? So, okay, in 2009, easier and harder were about a 50-50 split. Um, now, easier is far higher than harder. Although it's much lower than it was, that response is much lower than it was in 2009. So it's apparently people think it's harder than it was in 2009, but other languages are way harder, apparently. Well, m most of it, you know, 35% say about the same, 40% say it's easier. Yeah. So. I mean, okay, I'll go with that. I don't use much besides Rails, so. Uh, what databases do you typically use in production? Postgres, number one, since 2014. And MySQL, number two, since 2014. Not a surprise. Um, and then you've got the... Got, they got the people rocking the SQLite. <laughs> yeah, who is using SQLite in production? That, what? You can do it, but I wouldn't want to do it. Well, I mean, you can shoot yourself in the eye, too, but that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, uh, I don't I don't understand that. An MSSQL in a Rails, for a Rails project is... I mean, I guess it's okay, but I don't. I don't see a lot of people use. I've never run into that in the wild myself. Um, and no database is all the way at the bottom, which doesn't surprise me because if you're doing Rails apps, doing a database for something usually. Which database would you prefer to use in production? Post. My sequel, other, yeah. I mean that that makes sense. Post Postgres is by far and away best database for. Well, in my experience, the best database or, or relational database. Period. Um, 
for uh, more than a decade. Um, so this doesn't surprise me at all. Which NoSQL databases do you use? Um, so Redis is number one, right? Elasticsearch. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we use Redis. We were using Elasticsearch, but we got to the point where we just didn't need it. So now the only NoSQL uses Redis. And none is number three. Yeah, because unless you have a reason for NoSQL, you're going to be using a relational database. So um, usually what you're using with NoSQL is Redis or Elasticsearch. Out of curiosity, what did you... How did you replace Elasticsearch? Are you doing searches against directly against the database or some other tool, using some other search tool? Uh, they they moved to a. I mean, this was before I got there, but my understanding was they moved to a different type of caching search, where they didn't need a database backend outside of Redis, so they kind of moved it all into Redis what okay. they needed so that they wouldn't have to use multiple databases. Um, so when I came on, they were just kind of getting rid of the last remnants of references to Elasticsearch. They weren't actually even using it anymore. They just had some things that still referenced that and pulled the gems in. Yeah, I mean, my stuff, I'm just using the Postgres search capability, full text search capabilities and different areas like that. Yeah. I The only thing that I deal with is Postgres and Redis. And I've actually never used, well, in, in my app, I'm not using Redis because I think a reason a lot of people are using Redis is because they're using Sidekick. Yep. And then since they already have it, they may find other use cases for it. Whereas, because I've never used, on my app, I've never used Sidekick. I use, you know, demons or, you know, processes. Mm -hmm. So, like, I've gotten by without using Redis at all on my, on you know, my particular app. Even right. though I do use it for other projects. Well, that's, and in our case, that's, I mean, Redis was brought in because Sidekick was brought in. And then yeah. they, they were able to say, hey, we can consolidate stuff, stuff into Redis and not and get rid of some of these other parts. So OS editors and servers, which operating systems do you primarily develop your applications on? 76% Mac. That I mean in the early days of Rails that was almost 100%. Yeah, that was there was little old me with my Linux spooky laptop <laughs> and everybody with the Macs. I'm really surprised that, or I'm, well, surprised and happy that Linux Unix is growing as much as it is. Yeah. And honestly, until this job, I never used a Mac for development. And I still... I still don't actually use a Mac. The Mac is what it's running on, but but I actually use my Windows machine to remote into the Mac, and I have all all of the keyboard mapped over to standard P 
PC keyboard because the Mac keyboard just drives me nuts. Um, so, I, I mean, while it's in a Mac, it's not really a Mac. Uh, what I used primarily before that was Linux. Ubuntu is what I developed Rails in. Um, so, you know, coming over to a Mac wasn't that big of a leap because it's very Unix-like. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just the keyboard layout is it just makes me nuts. So, so I actually have my little, you know, Mac laptop sitting over here, but I program over here. Let's so just remote to it. What is your preferred editor? Visual Studio Code, 43%. Wow. I didn't expect it to be that big. I know it's popular. I didn't expect quite that much. Um, Does that even run on Ubuntu, I wonder? I'm not sure. I haven't tried it on Ubuntu. I looked into it because there's a lot of things. There's some plugins that look really interesting for it. But I just... I. I because I've been using Sublime since the very beginning of Sublime 2, and so I'm extremely comfortable in that environment, and I have it all tweaked out the way exactly the way I like it with my plugin, you know, the plugins I like and all that stuff. Um, so I couldn't find a good reason to switch over to VS Code. I I just couldn't. Um, but that's that's the big one, 43. I'm not saying it's a bad thing it's just as good as sublime but i didn't want to spend the time for yeah i'm I, i'm using sublime text as well i can't remember is because you were using it that i tried it or or i, I just happened upon it i can't remember i think yeah i think when we were getting it because i've been using it forever so i think when we started doing that stuff that's kind of what where we were at was Sublime Text. I just said, hey, use this. But I'm hearing all these people using VS Code, and I'm kind of like, hmm, what am, am, am I missing something? <laughs> well, there's there's a... I forget what the plugin is called, but it basically does a lot of um, code completion, automated code completion and code building. It's the Git thing that plugs into VS Code. Yeah, um, and, and being able to... Um, uh, what was that thing that get is coming up? The AI? What do they call it? I can't even remember now. Oh, that like like virtual pair programmer thing. Yeah, I think it kind of requires it or something. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Is that that? Um, I forget what they. I can't think of what they call it, but it's that. Copilot. Co yeah, copilot. As far as I know, that only plugs into VS Code. Yeah. MS, yeah. yeah, VS Code. Well, um, which makes sense because Microsoft owns GitHub now. So. Yeah. Um, and that's that specifically is the reason I was looking at going to VS Code because that um, looked really interesting to me. But the VS Code environment itself just didn't bring enough over Sublime Text with the plugins I used to be worth the switching cost. So, um, surprisingly, the number two spot here is Vim. 
I'm not surprised by that. Well, they actually uh, never... I, I don't get how they sort these. Oh, actually, Ruby Mine is the second place. Yeah. Why did they sort it like that? That's been a I mistake. But... Oh, looks like they did... No? I was going to say alphabetical order, but Adam's in the middle. Yeah, no. Uh, I don't they, know. They have, they, they have some of them out of order and other ones, too. I don't know why, but... Weird. Uh, but anyway, yeah, VS Code is making a big, big jump. I don't, th I don't think it had much a couple years ago. I hadn't heard of it four or five years ago. I, of course, heard of Vir Visual Studio because I did a lot of .NET programming, but not this VS Code. What are you using for containerization? Kubernetes, what we're using. Um, the number one is Docker has been for since 2018 the positioning of these things hasn't changed the relative size of the user base has but yeah one trend is people who are not using any containerizations gone from just under 50% to 25% so dropped by half right and but since, it didn't increase that much anywhere, so that's kind of odd. Right. So, yeah, how does it... Yeah, it has to add up to 100, doesn't it? Um, but what's interesting is that Docker is dropping over the past two years while Kubernetes is increasing. Or so, a little bit. I'm, yeah, it's like, not, not huge in the last jumps, two years, but... it's, it's kind of horizontal, but... Well, I know in the Postgres space, there's immense amount of content and people talking about running your database in Kubernetes. So there's all sorts of, that's a big, huge thing. Yeah. There's no mention of people trying to run Postgres on Docker or anything like that, but Kubernetes, that's huge. Yeah, and that's what we do. Um, I'm not on the infra side of things, so I just get the, kind of the <clears throat> smattering in the hallway exposure to it. but Yeah, and I'm not necessarily advocating running your database and Kubernetes personally, but I'm just saying I see a lot of content with my scaling Postgres show where people are talking about using it and, you know, different consultancies that have developed. Uh, they're called operators to be able to run your database system through it. So, yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that graph, I don't think. Uh, which web servers do you use in production? Nginx, 49%. Uma, 40%. Wait a minute. <laughs> hey, ho hold on just a second. Puma's a web server? Yeah. <laughs> the way I've always seen it, is Puma sits behind Nginx, Puma's the Ruby yeah. server. Yeah. Nginx is the web server. I didn't know Puma could sit on the front end and be a web server. Well, I mean, it can handle certificates. It's definitely not as sophisticated as all the different things you can do with Nginx and Apache. Either that or people are just confused and they're saying 
that's their web server. I mean, maybe they are have other front end things, like maybe they are using AWS CloudFront as their front end for static page serving, and they point to their Puma servers. So essentially, be. they have no Nginx, have no Apache. They rely upon like CloudFront and what's the, you know their elastic load balancing to direct to Puma servers. Or they're doing serverless or something like that. Well, even serverless, oh, yeah. I don't think you're going to have the servers for the Puma. Yeah, so. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I guess maybe the question is, depends on how you define that, I suppose. Yeah. But I kind of, my, my experience has always been Nginx and Puma go hand in hand, one behind the other. I would expect it to only be in the Rails servers, which is the next question below. Yeah, which Rails servers are you using in production? See, Puma, 68%. Right. Yeah. Like that passenger, I'm. Ah, uh, I mean, I guess if you got legacy stuff, passenger and unicorn makes sense because before what five or six years ago, Puma wasn't really used very much. Um, most people were using unicorn that I ran into, and then rainbows if you had to do, um. Um, web sockets because Unicorn, as far as I know, it didn't then, and as far as I know, still doesn't handle web sockets. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, my app's still rocking Unicorn, <laughs> is it? Yeah, and actually, I, I read a post the other day where saying where they were talking about there's actually some advantages to the process based model of Unicorn compared. To, there are certain apps where Unicorn can actually perform better because it's a process-based model as opposed to having the threads of Puma. Right. And that's why I think, you know, Unicorn Passenger are up here because a lot of legacy apps, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why? I mean, why would you rip your engine out? Well, there and... was even a separate discussion of that in that there are certain apps and not, not ignoring legacy, non-legacy, but they're saying there's particular workloads where unicorn can perform better yeah. because of its process process only based model i think i think it was being able to release um or to get rid of a process that's much harder to get rid of like a thread of puma and to make sure everything is all cleared out yeah yeah puma can be a little little tricky to sh shut down gracefully sometimes if you've got complex setups Uh, which continuous integration servers do you use? Well, number one now is GitHub Actions. There you go. Yep. I would like to move into something like that. Uh, the one we use, Travis, is in the middle. Um, That's been going down. It has. Well, I'm not a big fan. I, I'd rather be using CircleCI, which is the number two thing here. Or GitHub Actions. I don't... I think GitHub Actions, what I'm reading, is going to continue to get more and more popular. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I haven't used it that much, but I 
it's kind of like on my to-do list. I have some, I have some exposure to Circle CI, but I haven't done anything with GitHub Actions. Yeah, and what's what's odd about this graph is that all of these top, you know, Circle CI, GitLab, Jenkins, um, Semaphore, Travis, all of them are dropping over the past couple of years. Um, and other has gone way up and some of the really small ones are going up. So I don't understand that trend. Um, that unless GitHub actions just took so much market share from the other ones that they're all dropping, but well, for yeah, well, GitHub actions came out and it's dropped. Circle CI and GitHub and, and Jenkins, it's dropped them one down. The none dropped down one. So let's see yeah, the other shot other, way up. Yeah. So then there's smaller players that are, or maybe they're doing things differently. I don't know. Right. Cause well, I mean, you can see like Bamboo, Snap CI, Integrity, and Solano Labs have jumped up. But they haven't. Well, Solano Labs is on the bottom. Yeah, but its usage has gone way up. That, looks well, like. but I don't know if it's I don't I don't think it's by usage. I think it's based on rank. So others have dropped off in twenty eighteen. Oh, I see. Like Buildkite and Heroku. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, because there is no. Huh. Okay, well that makes a little more sense, I guess to use semaphore many years ago but that for a long time huh. but yeah i think github actions is something i'd like to spend more time in what are the third-party tools to use to keep an eye on your production systems so the top 10 are pingdom paper trail grafana splunk cabana Uptime Robot, Heroku, Dashboard, Nagios, PagerDuty, and LogDNA. Well, I mean, PagerDuty and Pingdom are the big ones I hear about. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm using. Yeah. Um, you know, Grafana, we used to use Grafana for log parsing, but never used it for uh, uptime monitoring. APM stuff. I use paper trail a little bit, but again, mostly for log consolidation more than anything else. So, yeah, I mean, Pingdom and PagerDuty are the ones I hear about all the time. The future of Rails. Does Rails got to wear shades? Is its future so bright? I feel the Rails core team is shepherding the project in the right direction. 33% totally agree. 45% mostly agree. 15% are neutral. 4% somewhat disagree. And totally disagree is 27 responses. So I guess that's like 1%-ish. Yeah. So generally, community thinks that Rails is heading in the right direction. Rails is still relevant in 2022. 76% totally agree. Well, I'm in that bucket. 
still using it. Still lots of big projects running on it. Why would it not be relevant? Um, I mean, there's, there's like, again, maybe 2% that are on the negative side of that question. So the only thing that I think, <clears throat> and I thought this was going to happen earlier, kind of what I'm going to mention is that with Ruby is a dog for multiprocessor systems. It's not easy to do like multi, when you want to have multiple processes, multiple threads, multiple things going on at one time, Ruby is quite poor at that. Yeah. But that's the same thing for other object-oriented languages, certain object-oriented languages like Python and whatnot. So the thing I'm seeing is that it tends to be the languages that are people are the easiest to get that are the easiest to get into, like Python and Ruby and some other languages like that. There's an incongruence between the hardware you we're using now with 24 cores, 32 cores, 64 core, you know, whereas the languages that are, say, more functionally as opposed to object-oriented designed, they make concurrent programming much, much easier. But in general, that programming is harder. So it's easy to do concurrent things, but the general programming is much harder to do. Like, you, like for example, Elixir, there's no loops. You have to use recursion. And there's not as much if then else branching you you know you can do that but you usually have guards instead of those techniques so i think yes it's still relevant but i wonder it's maybe it'll never happen because it's a little bit harder to do that type of programming but i wonder at some point because i remember we in one of the our previous shows we looked at the most popular languages mm -hmm. and they were so many of them were essentially object oriented and you know all of these functional languages that that do really well with concurrency programming were nowhere <laughs> right well i think part of that too has to do with the fact that Languages like Ruby and other object-oriented languages are closer to our speaking languages than the functional ones. So it's easier for our brains to kind of translate into those languages um, because it has syntactical similarities to how we speak. Um, whereas the functional ones take a, a little bit larger leap. They're, they're more mathematically focused. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but I think I think that has a large part of why those languages are more attractive, especially to new programmers. Um, yeah, and that's that's the thing that attracted me to Ruby is because I looked at Ruby and I was like, you know, if I don't know what what a command is, I can make an educated guess based on my language, my my natural speaking language, and usually I'll be pretty close to right, you know. And that's that's a great feature for a programming language. Um, and, you know, Ruby has 
well, the Ruby community has been making some strides towards multi-threading and stuff. Honestly, I've I've not run into very many situations where multi-threading was really an issue. Um, in fact, when I was doing .NET programming, which does a lot of multi-threading, I kept un-multi-threading un areas of code because it was just making such a mess of things and causing more problems than it solved. Um, so, and to me, the solution to multi-threading in Ruby, the simplest solution is background jobs like Sidekick. Just send them off and let them run on their, you know, let them run on their own core. Um, that's that's what the background jobs are for. So, to me, that kind of takes the place of the multi-threading issue. Yeah, but still, the performance is not up to... Yeah, a lot of these other languages. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So. Well, and, you know, one, because it's not a compiled language, so compiled languages are almost always going to have a performance increase over JIT yeah. languages. Yeah. Um, it, but even even amongst JIT languages, Ruby's not the fastest kid on the block. But I haven't run into a lot of situations where that's been a significant issue that I couldn't somehow work around. Uh, I feel confident security vulnerabilities are being addressed in new Rails releases. 70% totally agree, 23% mostly agree, 7% neutral. So almost nobody is on the negative of that. I yep. agree. I mean, they're pretty pretty responsive when CVEs come out and they they do a lot to patch those up and get them into the wild and make sure everybody knows about it. They're, they're pretty on top of that, which I appreciate. Is Rails your server-side framework of choice? 94% yes. <laughs> well, I guess Sinatra is kind of on the small end there. <laughs> Sinatra, Sinatra never really... Well, it is the Ruby on Rails community survey as opposed I mean... to the Ruby server <laughs> community survey. Right. But even if you if you look at the the frameworks that are sitting on top of Ruby, if we're talking just about Ruby, Rails massively dominates, um, and even Sinatra, like when it it was introduced, there was a big brouhaha about it, and everybody was in love with it, and that lasted for not very long, and it never really got a lot of traction. Um, so. Well, and Rails keeps on adding more features, and Sinatra is more bare bones. So it's yeah. like you can get a whole bunch of stuff for free if you keep on Rails. Right. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot to be said for bare bones and roll your own, but still, I for a framework, I don't, I didn't get Sinatra myself, but maybe that's just me because I'm an old grumpy turd. Would you recommend new developers learn and build Rails applications in 2022? Absolutely. New developers, I think, it's one of the reasons I think Ruby on Rails is so big, one of the reasons, is because it's a great language and framework to learn on because it's convention over configuration. So can you can get things going very quickly you can get a lot of of um 
a lot of the red green cycles feedback cycles going very fast um, and the language Ruby language itself is very intuitive for the most part so learning on that is is a very good thing and we're uh, definitely over time but I think that was the last question yep. essentially that is so yeah, I think overall uh, Rails is still strong, Rails is still relevant, and Rails will continue to be a thing for quite some time. It will in my life anyway. I'm not I'm not learning any more programming languages. I'm done. No. Sticking with what I know. <laughs> so I ain't got that much longer to worry about it anyway, so what's the point of learning new stuff? I'm an old dog. So uh Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that. I actually, I actually had had fun looking through this and learn learning things about what's going on in the Rails community. But um, I feel pretty good about this language and this this framework. Um, I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. You keep hearing that come up in the community. Oh, Rails is going to die out next year. No, no, it's not. No, it really isn't. There's there's still way too many big apps. Um, using this stuff um, for it to go anywhere. And it, and it keeps pushing forward. I think it's doing a good job. Uh, and I think the community's doing a good job. There's a lot of innovation, the gems and the plugins and the, the um, applications and the way things are being put together. So it, it's, you know, it's a good ecosystem all around. Um, so, Hope you guys enjoyed that. I certainly did. If you did, please give us a like and a follow. Uh, consider subscribing so you know when we go live. Uh, you can find our podcasts everywhere that podcasts live. You can also see all our videos and podcasts if you join us on rubberduckdevshow.com. And you can sign up for a newsletter while you're there. Um, also, you can follow us on Twitter at DuckyDevShow. Uh, we... Once in a while, put some random things up there, uh, as much as two old guys are on Twitter, but you know how it goes. Um, anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that. We will be back next Wednesday with something or other. Uh, we'll have to talk about that. So, you know, follow us on Twitter and maybe we'll let you know ahead of time. Uh, until then, <laughs> happy programming. Happy programming. <laughs> <laughs>